Well, we're going to start a two-part series tonight on sanctification. Sanctification. And as we start that, I, I want to uh, turn your attention or get you to think about something you've probably heard of before if you're familiar with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and the Four Spiritual Laws. When I was a college student, uh, there was a time when I was a volunteer with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were given these, these tracts, Four Spiritual Laws. And I remember going around university, a university campus and uh, using these as an opportunity to, to, to get discussions going about spiritual things. And you know that the first law of this tract reads as follows. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could critique that statement but what I remember as I interacted with young university students was that many automatically interpreted this phrase, a wonderful plan, as a reference to happiness, to health, to prosperity, to comfort, and to other temporal benefits that fleshly human beings long for. And so the response would often be, well, yes, I want this wonderful plan. But God, in his plan of redemption, has made this plan very, very clear. In redemption, God's plan is singular. And it is expressed very well in a text like Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where we have the start of this golden chain, this ordo salutis. And as Paul begins by talking about foreknowledge and predestination, he pauses to explain why the plan of redemption was arranged in the first place. And this reads as follows, Romans 8 verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There is a very clear plan in redemption, and that is to take a, a people and to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the wonderful plan of God in redemption. It's also expressed in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, where Paul begins with this eulogy, these, these words of blessing to God, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That is God's plan in redemption. God's plan in redemption, God's plan in the gospel, is not temporal prosperity. It is not physical health. It is not that you would receive the comforts that you would prefer in this life. There is one ultimate plan, and that plan is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And what is that image? How does Scripture present the image of Jesus Christ? And it's very, very clear. We could look at a text like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which says this, speaking of Jesus... We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's the, that's the standard. That is that, that standard to which we are being conformed to. That's God's plan to conform us to that standard, to be without sin. Later on in Hebrews, we read in chapter 7, verse 26, that it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, again, emphasizing the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And then the writer of Hebrews defines him. He is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, when it says separated from sinners, doesn't mean that Jesus didn't interact with sinful people. It means that his character was utterly transcendent cut apart from, not intermingled with the lives, the sins of, of sinners. 
that is the, the example, that is the standard to which all true believers are being conformed. That is God's great plan in redemption. It is to create a brotherhood. It is to create a brotherhood around Jesus as God's son and we as his brothers. That is why God has saved us. So as we think of that, as we think of the reason why God has chosen us and has extended to us this grace, this mercy, we must always think of it in terms of being conformed to his son. Yes, we receive many other blessings, some more central than others, others more peripheral than others. Yes, we do receive the gift of eternal life. We receive forgiveness of sins. We receive the blessings of fellowship with other Christians and so on and so forth. But most central to our understanding of the reason we have been redeemed is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is what our lives as Christians are being directed towards. That's where we're headed. In light of that, one theologian, Herman Bavinck, said this, since the redemption that God grants and works out in Christ is meant to accomplish complete deliverance from sin and all its consequences, it includes sanctification and glorification. And we're looking at this component here, sanctification, both tonight and next week. Up to this point in our study, as we've looked at how God has applied, uh, has applied redemption to our lives, we've been looking at those components which really deal with that moment of conversion. We've talked about calling where God in that supernatural way brings the gospel of Jesus Christ to us in an effectual manner. We've talked about regeneration where God gives us new life. We who are dead in trespasses and sins now being made alive in Christ. We talked about the gifts of repentance and faith. We talked about justification, God's declaration that we are now righteous in Christ. We talked about adoption being now considered by legal declaration God's own children. And last week we talked about sealing as well, that work of the Holy Spirit whereby he pledges himself to us and serves as that, rant, that, that promise that will inevitably lead to final and full redemption in the end. All of those things, calling, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sealing, all those have ongoing implications, but we really look at these as having something to do with conversion itself, that moment when salvation, when redemption is applied to us. But now we turn to a component of salvation that has a durative nature, that isn't completely, fully accomplished at the moment of conversion. And this is what we call sanctification. And so you could look at it this way, that if you see the moment of regeneration there on the left-hand side of the screen and the moment of glorification when this process of redemption is finally realized, the white line that connects the two, you could liken to the Christian life, the life in this life, and sanctification is that process, is that connection that takes us from the moment of regeneration to that moment of glorification, and we're going to define glorification in the future. But let's focus now on sanctification. How do we understand sanctification? Well, as we look at it, I want you to focus on four terms tonight, four terms that are related to our discussion of sanctification. And these are the four terms, sanctification itself, the term definitive sanctification, we want to define that, maybe you've never heard of that before, it's a very important component of sanctification. I want to define the term saint, and then I also want to define progressive sanctification. We'll review this as well next week and add a few more terms 
next week as well as it relates to the overall topic of sanctification. So the term sanctification, definitive sanctification, saint, and progressive sanctification. Let's look at the first of these, sanctification in general. This term has as its basic idea that of being setting, of setting something or someone aside or apart for a particular purpose. To sanctify, this verb to sanctify means to set something or someone apart for a particular purpose. It has the idea of, of taking from the mundane, of separating something from a larger group, from a, a, a certain context, taking something, separating it from its current context, from the ordinary, from the mundane, and consecrating it to a new and special status or usage. So when you think of the verb to sanctify, understand it, it involves these two components. To take something out of the ordinary, to take something out of its context in which there are many, to take that in its mundane context, to separate it from that mundane context, that ordinary context, and to set it apart for a special status or a special usage. Now, your minds probably take you back to the Old Testament, and it should because that's where the foundation of this comes from. All the different utensils that were used in the tabernacle and then in the temple, they were often called sanctified. Why? Because they were made from mundane things, and then they were set apart, taken from that mundane context, and set apart to be used only for special usages. That's the basis in the Old Testament for our understanding of sanctification. And so in the same way, as we talk about this in relationship to salvation, in the same way, with respect to those whom God has redeemed, sanctification involves these two aspects. When you think of sanctification, understand it in terms of these two aspects. First, it involves the separation of the new believer from sin. Sanctification involves the separation of the believer from sin. And secondly, sanctification involves the dedication of that new believer to a new status, to a new purpose, to a new role, that of consecration to Christ. Or, or even better, we would just say this, that new status to which the believer is separated, that new status is Christ-likeness. So sanctification, when we think of sanctification as the, the doctrine of sanctification, it involves these two components. It involves the necessary separation of the, of the believer from sin, and it involves the consecration of that new believer to Christ-likeness. That's sanctification in a nutshell. We go back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, asks this very question. What is sanctification? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives this answer, and it's a good one. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to, notice this, it says, to die unto sin, that's the separation from sin, and to live unto righteousness. That's the dedication to Christ-likeness. Those two components are they're implicit in the answer given by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If we read from MacArthur and Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine, page 632, we read these words as they define sanctification. They define it as the blessing the blessing of sanctification is that benefit of the application of redemption that though it begins at regeneration, it is applied throughout the entirety of the Christian's life. In sanctification, God, working especially by the Holy Spirit, separates the believer unto himself 
and makes him increasingly holy, progressively transforming him into the image of Christ by subduing the power of sin in his life and enabling him to bear the fruit of obedience in his life. Again, sanctification, that process whereby the believer is removed from his prior context of sin, the mundane world in which we live, and is dedicated to God, is given this new pursuit, this consecration to Christ-likeness. Louis Burkhoff defines it this way, quote, sanctification may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works, end quote. That is a good definition of sanctification. But as we define sanctification, it is important to note that Scripture takes this concept of separation from and dedication to, and it applies it or defines it in three different ways. It's all related, but there's three ways to look at sanctification. And the first one we're going to look at is what we're going to look at tonight. It's definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is the sanctification, as we're going to define in just a moment, that happens at the moment of regeneration. I'll define it more, but this is the first kind of sanctification that the Bible describes, definitive sanctification. The second kind of sanctification, this setting apart from and to, is what we call progressive sanctification. As you look at the illustration on the screen, you can see that whereas definitive sanctification occurs at the moment of regeneration, progressive sanctification spans from regeneration all the way to glorification. And then we have the third kind of sanctification. We'll talk about it next week, along with progressive sanctification next week as well. It's called perfective sanctification. Perfective sanctification. So tonight, we're going to focus mainly on the first of these, what we call definitive sanctification. Let's now look at that term. What do theologians mean when we use the term definitive sanctification. Now, as you do reading in other books on doctrine, sometimes you'll come across the designation positional sanctification. That too is a, is a, is a good way to define it. It has to do with our position in Christ. But definitive is also another way that is used to describe this particular, uh, this particular component or aspect of sanctification. How do we define it? Let me define it this way. Definitive sanctification is an instantaneous act accomplished at the moment of your regeneration. So when you are made alive, whenever that was, if you are in Christ, the moment that you are made alive, the moment that the Spirit breathed life into you, at that moment, you were sanctified. In that sense of definitive sanctification, it was completed. Wayne Grudem defines it this way, quote, this initial step in sanctification involves a definitive or definite break from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves the sin, end quote. So when we look at definitive sanctification. We look at it as a completed act. It's not a process. It is done by God, not by the believer. It is positional in nature. It puts us into a status or a position. It is not transformational. We're going we're gonna to see that in, in, in progressive sanctification, but definitive sanctification, what happens conclusively at the moment of regeneration, is this completed act. It's what we could say is 
is an indicative. In other words, when we come across this kind of sanctification described in Scripture, it's never commanded. It's only described as a past fact. You were sanctified. We'll look at some texts in just a minute. But, it, but this kind of sanctification that, hope in, that happens at the moment of, 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 of regeneration is, is not something we're commanded as believers to pursue. That is progressive sanctification. This sanctification is described as a, a fact, as an indicative, not an imperative. And so if we would look at the ordo salutis in terms of chronology, and we've said this before, that when we look at the ordo salutis in terms of chronology, that there are many of these factors that occur all simultaneously. Regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sealing, sanctification in its definitive sense is part of this conversion moment. Definitive sanctification is part of this conversion moment, this instantaneous event that occurs at the moment of your conversion. And it's important to understand this, as we're going to see as we think of some of the implications and ramifications of this. In some Christians' understanding of sanctification, this is missing, and it leads to some serious misunderstandings about the Christian life later on, and we'll get to that in a few moments. Now, let's look at some texts that explain, or, or I should say that, that illustrate this definitive sanctification, the separation from and dedication to that occurs at the moment of regeneration. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, and he says these words, as he closes his address to them, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Or you could say who have been sanctified. Speaking of a completed act. This is also present in Acts chapter 16, 26, verse 18. Acts 26, verse 18, where Paul is recounting his encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and the commission that the Lord Jesus gives to Paul there as he repents there on that dusty Damascus road. And he includes these words as he recalls the commission that he has been appointed, Paul has been appointed, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Another text is in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, and perhaps this is the best one to go to as an illustration of definitive sanctification because it's just so clearly pictured for us. Paul, as he begins this letter, this first letter to the Corinthian church, he includes this in his salutation. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice that Paul says, who have been sanctified. He doesn't say who are being sanctified. He says they have been sanctified. In fact, it's important to note that in these three texts that I just read to you, Acts 20, 32, 26, 18, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, the verbal form of the verb, have been sanctified, is what we call a, a verb in the perfect tense. Now, what does that mean that these verbs have been sanctified? These occurrences are in the perfect tense. Well, basically, it has this idea that the perfect tense refers to an action that is completed and that results in a new state. So, the act that was completed, that is referred to in these three texts, 
particularly 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, to those who have been sanctified, it refers to the act of sanctification that has already been complete. It's not in process any longer. It's done. That's what the perfect emphasizes. But the perfect also emphasizes a resultant state. So, At the moment of conversion, at the moment of regeneration, we have been sanctified. It has been done to us by God. He has set us apart. And that results in a new status. Now, there's another another text that refers to this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. I'll return to this later. This text contains a list of what we would say would be very serious vices. Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Here, this verb, you are sanctified, is a simple aorist is what it's called. And in that case, it simply refers to a completed action, an action as a whole. It's not ongoing. It's not still future. It's done. That's the idea. And Paul says that those who came out of those lifestyles were washed And they were definitively set apart from sin and to Christ Jesus. And what is particularly remarkable about these instances, whether it's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, is that Paul writes this to what kind of a church? It's the most chaotic, problematic church in the New Testament. The Corinthian church was a church that that was filled with all kinds of problems so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, he says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. In other words, you're a bunch of immature believers. You're not where you need to be. This church was racked by all kinds of things strife, divisions, tolerance towards sin, internal lawsuits as they brought each other to court, misunderstandings over marriage, abuse of the Lord's supper, confusion over spiritual gifts, a lack of brotherly love, and yet Paul still says to them, to those who were sanctified, set apart, to those who once were idolaters, but who have been washed, who have been sanctified. That leads us to the next term, which is related to this, and it's important, the term saint. The term saint. Now, we're all familiar with this term and its contemporary usage. It's used very, very prevalently by all kinds of other religions, I went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and this was its first entrance, its entry for the term saint. Merriam-Webster Dictionary said the saint is, quote, one officially recognized, especially through canonization, as preeminent for holiness. So that's a common definition. One Catholic dictionary said it this way, in a strict sense, Saints are those who distinguish themselves by heroic virtue during life and whom the church honors as saints either by her ordinary universal teaching authority or by a solemn definition called canonization. So that's how the term saint is understood by many, many people in the world around us. A saint is someone who typically is already dead. It's someone who in their lifetime accomplished some amazing feats and who fulfills a certain kind of 
of, of resume, so to speak, spiritual resume in achieving this preeminence in holiness. But according to Scripture, definitive sanctification renders all believers saints. That's the only way that the New Testament recognizes saints. Who is a saint? A saint is someone who has been definitively sanctified. Who is one who has been definitively sanctified? It's anyone who has been truly converted to Christ. Romans 1 verse 7, Paul writes to the Roman church and he says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace. Romans 8, verse 27, a little later on, he talks about the intercession of the Holy Spirit. It's a topic that we're going to look at in a few weeks. It's a beautiful text. But in Romans 8, verse 27, notice what he says. He says, and he, that is God the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, that is the Spirit, intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. Understand this, it's not the saints who are interceding for anyone. It's the Holy Spirit who is interceding for the saints. And in the context of Romans, the saint is the one who has been regenerated. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, we read that text already, but notice how Paul joins the term saint with the concept of definitive sanctification. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, there's our verb in the perfect tense, And then he says this by way of definition, saints by calling, saints by calling. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, he addresses the letter to the Ephesians with these words, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Philippians 1 verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Not even just the overseers and deacons are saints. Everyone in the church is a saint. Colossians 1 verse 2, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew write this, quote, what makes a believer a saint is not his practical righteousness, but his positional righteousness. All believers are saints because all believers have been set apart by a holy God and have been united to the holy Lord Jesus. This is precisely the concept of definitive sanctification. That then leads us to our fourth term that we're talking about. And this fourth term I won't spend a lot of time on. We'll talk about it in depth next week along with other terms related to it. It's the term progressive sanctification. What is progressive sanctification? Progressive sanctification is like definitive sanctification in that it also involves this setting apart from sin towards a new new role, a new status, but it is different from definitive sanctification in that it is a continuous process. Progressive sanctification is a continuous process that is initiated at regeneration. Wayne Grudem states this, quote, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So what we have here in progressive sanctification is the process. And this is what we're most familiar with when we hear the term sanctification. The process. It is a process. It is progressive, or what we could say intensifying in nature, in that it's not just a a, a flat line. It is a line that makes its way gradually upwards as a person in his actual life, as a believer in his or her actual life is is, is putting away sin more and more and, and is looking more and more like Christ in their attitude, in their actions, in their words, in their thoughts. This kind of sanctification is not done wholly and solely and totally and exclusively by God, such as definitive sanctification. This is a, 
a, a, a sanctification that involves the conscious awareness and participation of the believer himself. It is transformative in nature and that believers who are in this process, as all believers are, experience the, the change that takes place, the change in their thinking and the change in their habits and behaviors. This kind of sanctification is imperatival in nature. It is given as commands. But it is a kind of command that is based already on the sanctification that has already taken place, the definitive sanctification. You could look at it this way. The indicative, the fact, is the definitive sanctification. And because it has already been done, there is grounds for the imperative. There is grounds for the exhortation. If you go back to the very start of our series, remember that I defined the biblical concept of salvation as a salvation that begins with the indicatives and then moves to the imperatives. It begins with the facts of what God has already done and then moves to the responsibilities and duties of those who have been saved. That is what distinguishes true salvation, biblical salvation, from all other kinds of, of salvation that's out there. The Christian gospel, the biblical gospel, begins with that which God has done and moves from that as a basis to the exhortations, to the duties, to the responsibilities. And where do we find this kind of progressive sanctification described? Again, I'm not going to go into this in any great detail. Let me just give you two texts quickly. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. We'll look at this more next week. Paul writes to the Philippians, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the exhortation. But then... He explains the basis, the grounds, the foundation to this exhortation when he says this, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The same idea is found in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 where Paul again moves from the basis of the indicatives to the Imperatives, when he says this, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, there's the, there's the indicative, there's the facts, we have promises. The promises of salvation, we have them. He says then, move on to this, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's progressive sanctification. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I want to give a final note here about these terms. And, and maybe this is the only thing that you really get from our, our study tonight because it's so very important. There's a great deal of confusion about the Christian life among many today. It's, it's rampant, especially in, in the West. Confusion about the nature of of the Christian life. And let me say this, that a lot of this confusion over the nature of the Christian life arises from the fact that so many Christians are confused over the meaning of justification and the meaning of sanctification. There is this rampant confusion of these two terms. Many Christians, and, and I would even say many preachers, many pastors, many church leaders believe that theology and doctrine is just an academic distraction and is unnecessary for a vibrant Christian life. You don't need doctrine, you just need the, you know, the, that fuel for the fire, you just need the passion, and that's what the Christian life is all about. Well, that kind of apathy towards doctrine and ignorance in doctrine leads to confusion of the Christian life and a plethora of spiritual problems. Failing to properly define justification and sanctification, especially sanctification in its progressive sense, leads to all kinds of problems, including false assurance. 
If you want to know why there's so much false assurance, you, you, you know there's people professing to be believers and claiming to go to heaven and, and that everything's fine with them and you look at their lives and it's just a disaster and you wonder why do they have this assurance? In many cases, it's because they have been poorly taught and they themselves do not study and they do not properly understand the distinction between justification and sanctification. Or you'll meet those who have a great fear of losing their salvation or whether they're saved or not. Again, those problems arise predominantly from the inability to be able to properly define and distinguish sanctification and justification. Or even outright heresy, works-based righteousness, and, and this kind of religion that says you, you've got to work your way into heaven, and, and you'll have professing Christians who will claim that, and again, that comes down to this very basic root problem of a failure of understanding what justification is and what sanctification is and what their relationship is. So if somebody says to you, look, doctrine doesn't matter. This study of the components of salvation, it's not important. Just have a fire for God in your life. No. That leads to very serious problems, misunderstandings, and even outright heresy. J.C. Ryle, in his very important book called Holiness, if you don't have this book, you've got some great reading on the weeks to come as you're at home practicing social distancing. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, I am persuaded that one great cause of the darkness and uncomfortable feelings of many well-meaning people in the matter of religion is their habit of confounding and not distinguishing justification and sanctification. It can never be too strongly impressed on our minds that they are two separate things. No doubt they cannot be divided, and everyone that is a partaker of either is a partaker of both, but never, never ought they to be confounded. And never ought the distinction between them to be forgotten. There are three dangers in particular. In light of J.C. Ryle's words, we can think of three dangers of failing to properly define and distinguish and relate these two terms, sanctification and justification. One common uh, danger is to confuse justification with sanctification. And to suggest they're referring to the same thing. So, justification, which we define as that legal declaration where God says you are righteous, is confused with the process of growing in righteousness. Now, what happens as a result in, in, the, in the daily living of such a person? He believes that until he is, he is sufficiently righteous in his behavior, he could never be pronounced righteous in his position. It leads to works-based righteousness. It leads to the idea that there can be no assurance of salvation until that standard has somehow been met. And that is the result of confusing these two terms. Or another one is to place justification after sanctification. To place justification after progressive sanctification in terms of the ordo salutis, making justification dependent upon human human cooperation. Again, in, in Roman Catholic dogma, sanctification is what precedes that final declaration of righteousness. And, and as a result, you have, to, you have to labor. You have to get more and more holy as you take advantage of, of the, the graces God gives you. And then finally, maybe one day you'll be pronounced righteous. Or common in many evangelical circles the danger of separating sanctification from justification. In other words, to say all that's important is justification. Sanctification is optional. It's not necessary. It doesn't necessarily happen. And so you have those who preach a, what's called a no lordship salvation, which says just accept Jesus as your savior. You don't need to 
You don't need to claim him and obey him as your Lord. That's, that's not necessary. You just need justification. Sanctification may or may not happen later on, but you're saved. Because what it does is it, it so distinguishes them as to disconnect sanctification from justification, leaving no necessary relationship. Or you have some in certain circles who will teach this higher life experience where you first are converted and are justified and and then you can continue to live in sin for uh, an amount of time and then all of a sudden you'll go through a second conversion and that's when you're sanctified. Again, it's false. It's not taught by Scripture and it's evidence of poor understanding of the Word of God. I like what A.A. Hodge said. He wrote this, quote, You cannot take Christ for justification unless you take him for sanctification. You can no more separate justification from sanctification than you can separate the circulation of blood from the inhalation of air. Breathing and circulation are two different things. But you cannot have one without the other. They go together and they constitute one life. So you have justification and sanctification. They go together. They constitute one life. Now let's look at some essential characteristics of definitive sanctification. We have a few moments left. I'll go through this quickly. The essential characteristics of definitive sanctification. I'll deal with progressive sanctification later next week. Now let's close our time looking at some of the important things to remember about definitive sanctification. Number one, definitive sanctification is rooted in the holiness of God. It's rooted in God's character. And when we say that God is holy, this refers to his absolute transcendence and purity. He is absolutely transcendent over the created realm, and he is absolutely pure of anything antithetical to his perfections. When the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we read of these statements that God is holy, that verb holy refers to being cut above or cut apart from. And it has this idea that God is not like creation. He's not mundane. He is wholly other. He is separate from sin, separate from the created realm. He doesn't intermingle with it. And so when you talk about sanctification, it is rooted in that very quality of God. R.C. Sproul says, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. What is sin then? Sin can be defined as anything which is contrary to the character and purposes of God. God must therefore cut apart or separate from anything tainted by sin. And therefore, any true work that God does, particularly when we talk about redemption, it will necessarily lead to the separation from sin. So, when we talk about sanctification and that it is part of salvation, inseparable from it, it it arises from God's own character that he is separate from impurity and everything that he does, particularly with respect to salvation, involves a separation from sin. Later on, you can look at some texts that explain this or illustrate this from the Old Testament that illustrate the transcendence and holiness of God. Let me just read Habakkuk 1 verse 13, which says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. That's the holiness of God. And, 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 and of course, we sang the song just a, a few moments ago, holy, holy, holy. And that, of course, as Mark mentioned, was based off Isaiah 6, the refrain of the seraphim around the throne. He's separate. And so sanctification is rooted in that. Number two, definitive sanctification is accomplished at the moment of conversion. It's accomplished at the moment of conversion. Regeneration, that is when God gives dead men, dead spiritually, when he gives the gift of life, 
This regeneration provides the context for this separation from sin and consecration to God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 defines us as, as new creatures. The old things passed away, new things have come. Titus 3 verses 5 to 6 defines his saving of us that was done by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so this sanctification, this setting apart occurs at that moment when God sets us apart from the, the, the crowd of sinful humanity. He sets us apart for his purpose. Number three, definitive sanctification liberates the new believer from the bondage of sin. This is so very, very important. This is key. The immediate effect of definitive sanctification is the cancellation of sin's dominion. Understand that. This is the effect of definitive sanctification. You could look at it this way. That one-time instantaneous act that God did to you at the moment of your conversion was his breaking of the chains that bound you to sin. That's what happened through definitive sanctification. Indeed, it's, it's not that God eliminates sin. It's not that he eliminates sin's presence. But definitive sanctification ends. It terminates sin's reign of tyranny in your life. And it creates the status of being dead to sin. Understand this. It's not that we are slowly dying to sin in that factual sense. That may be in the practice, but in the factual sense, in our position, you must look at yourself as already dead to sin. That's the importance of definitive sanctification. We don't have time to go through Romans 6, but you can do this on your own. Go home and read through Romans chapter 6 as Paul talks about both definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. But he talks about us as we who died to sin. We died to sin. He, he says it numerous times throughout these verses, all the way to verse 18. We died to sin. We died to sin. We died to sin. No longer slaves, no longer slaves, no longer slaves. Why is that? Because at the moment of regeneration, if you are in Christ, God broke the shackles. They're no longer there. Romans, 8 verse, uh, Romans 6, 17 to 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. It is this freedom from sin that led Charles Wesley when he penned a song, a hymn, to commemorate his own conversion. He stated this in, in one of the stanzas. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That is not a reference to glorification, men. That is a reference to conversion. That is a reference to definitive sanctification. That is what happened to you. And that is so important today as men struggle with all kinds of, of sin in their lives, some of it very habitual, and some of that arises from misunderstanding thinking that liberation from sin is just a fantasy. It is not possible in this life. But the doctrine of definitive sanctification says liberation from sin is not a fantasy. It is real. This has been accomplished to you and in you if you are in Christ. You are now a saint. And if you are in Christ, you must believe that sin's dominion over you has been canceled, that you are dead to sin. And that is a matter of fact, not just wishful thinking. In fact, sometimes, as you, you might have even found this yourself, as you try to help those who, who uh, are 
are in patterns of sin and, and, and they'll come to you, as I've had men say to me before as well, and maybe as you've even said to yourself, I just can't help it. I just can't help it. And they think that there's no choice, that in this life, there will never be mortification of those sins. But understand this, man, this is very important. The true believer can never say that he has no choice but to sin. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The only way that one could possibly say that he has no choice but to sin is either A, that he perhaps is ignorant and needs good teaching. He needs to be walked through Romans chapter 6. Or if somebody wants to insist that he cannot help but sin, there's no way out. Then the only other option, if it's not ignorance and, and the, the lack of good teaching, then it, the only other option is that he is not a believer. Because as believers, that, those bonds, those shackles have been broken. And any kind of habitual patterns of sin are, are, are not there because the believer has no choice. It's just who he is. It's, it's just his character. He, he can't help it. No, it means his thinking has gone awry. And it means he's choosing to allow himself to be pulled back into the, the pit of mud where sin dwells. MacArthur and Mayhew say this, all this speaking of definitive sanctification, assures Christians that though once helplessly bound to the enslaving power of sin, they are now possessed of Christ's resurrection power to resist temptation, to mortify sin, and to pursue increasing holiness. Therefore, though the believer may struggle mightily with sin, he must never adopt a defeatist attitude in which he is resigned to accept the reality of sin in his life. To do so is to make peace with a dethroned enemy to submit to sin's dominion that has nevertheless been conquered. Men, you need to understand that because especially among men, these patterns of sin, whether it be pornography and lust, anger, materialism, and so on, so many men simply give up and think that there cannot be any way out in this life. That is a misunderstanding of definitive sanctification and it gives no hope definitive sanctification gives us hope that the that the believer in jesus christ does not need to bow to sin he does not need to that that loyalty has been canceled once for all by god himself and the resources necessary to resist have been given through the holy spirit Number four, definitive sanctification inaugurates a new conflict with actual sin. And again, this refers more to, to progressive sanctification. We'll talk about this lots, lots next week. But understand this, though the, the shackles have been broken, sin does not give up without a fight, does not surrender easily. The emancipation that definitive sanctification brings inaugurates a new reality, the reality of conflict. Whereas before... Maybe the individual before his conversion didn't like what he did, but it really was no internal conflict. He enjoyed it, whatever sin it was. Now, all of a sudden, there's conflict. Now, all of a sudden, there's a war in the soul when temptation arises. Understand this. That's, that's a good sign. Because definitive sanctification inaugurates this new conflict that you may never have felt before. You may have loved your sin before, or maybe had some kind of a, an unease with it just because of the consequences or the implications. But now that conflict is internal. Now it, it, is, it is in the heart as you begin to battle with this remaining presence of sin in your life. Because we have been freed from sin we now have the ability to mortify it and know this, men, it does not die easy. The indicative, which is definitive sanctification, will lead now to the imperative. And we have texts like Galatians 5, verse 16 to 18, which describe this battle 
where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. This is the new conflict inaugurated by definitive sanctification. Number five, definitive sanctification is experienced by all genuine believers. There is no genuine Christian who has not been sanctified in this definitive sense. There is no special class of privileged Christians who have at some point in their lives received this blessing, this higher life, this second blessing. No. And there is also no class of Christians deemed too disgraceful for this kind of blessing. All are unworthy of definitive sanctification, but all receive it by grace. And that takes us to a text like 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. As we bring our thinking to a close here, our study, I want to turn your attention back to this text where Paul writes this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the wonderful reality. Paul lists some of the most vile offenses. And he says, you have been set apart from this. There is nothing too vile. There is nothing too heinous. There is nothing so ugly in the sight of God that he cannot separate you from it and set you apart unto himself. Look at this list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, swindlers. And understand, in our society at a time like this, there's a lot of those, and they are being reduced to the ground by their circumstances. But it is the gospel of God, it is this wonderful plan of salvation that says to any of them, those chains, those that, that bondage, those shackles can be broken. They can be broken. There is hope. It is found only in Jesus Christ, the only one that has the power to break the bonds of sin. As we reflect upon our current context in which we live today, this is a message that is so needed in our world. Those who are caught in slavery to sin, who think that there's no hope. Definitive sanctification in the gospel as a whole gives hope. In this life, you can be freed from the power of sin. What a wonderful message. It's a message that we must have on our tongues. It's a message that we must be ready to preach in season and out of season. Let's pray for that even now. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this wonderful truth. As we look at this list of things that you have done to us at our conversion, it just keeps getting better. You gave us new life. The gift of repentance and faith. You justified us. You declared us righteous as having the righteousness of Christ. You adopted us into your spiritual family, calling us children. You gave us your Holy Spirit as a pledge that you will not ever abandon us, but will surely bring us to final glory. And you also reveal to us that our old slave master, that merciless, ugly slave master of sin has been defeated. 
your cross broke the chains and freed us once and for all from tyranny to do what sin dictates. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have purchased us to yourself and now made us slaves of righteousness. Separated us from the context of sin, from the mundane, and dedicated us to your glory, to the image of your son Jesus. And now even in this life as we still struggle with the presence of sin, we know every time that we come across temptation's path, we do not have to bow our heads. We can look to you and find escape in the time of need. That is a wonderful reality. I pray for all the men here, that, and for me included, that we would take greater awareness of this, apply it in our lives, and know we are a slave to you and you alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.